she introduced to women's wardrobes these ideas of comfort and simplicity and functionality that weren't just about, you know, putting on a grubby tracksuit, but, you know, a way of dressing that satisfied all those principles, but was also still elegant. And it's this kind of idea of an understated luxury. And I think that is something that is timeless. Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. And I'm here with Danielle Whitfield, who's curator of fashion and textiles at the National Gallery of Victoria. And it's just a delight to have you on the program, Danielle. Oh, thank you, Stephen. I'm very (laughs) pleased to be here too. As you know, I'm passionate about fashion. I love it. I love the backstories. And we've just seen, we're coming to an end now of the Coco Chanel exhibition at the National Gallery of Victoria that ends um, at the end of April. So there's still time if you're quick. How did that start? And what was your involvement? How do you work with an exhibition of this size with overseas people? Um, yeah, well, that's a that's a really great question, and I can only say that you know, working with an exhibition of this size during a pandemic has even more complications um, than you can imagine. But really, the exhibition project began when the director of the Paris Musée, which is, I guess, the organisation that oversees an umbrella. Um, of 14 museums in Paris, visited the NGV back in 2019 and alerted us to the fact that the Palais Galliera, which is a specialist fashion museum of Paris, was doing an exhibition um, titled Gabrielle Chanel Fashion Manifesto and potentially this could be something that we'd be interested in. So from that moment onwards, over the next couple of years, we worked very closely with the curators of the exhibition to bring a version of um, their show to Melbourne. And When I say a version, um, the exhibition is essentially the same um, in terms of its presentation and its thematics, but like with any um, fashion um, exhibition, works cannot be on display indefinitely. So some of the works that visitors would have seen in Paris um, had to be retired and we had to work with private collectors internationally and other museums to uh, bring new works to Melbourne um, for our audiences. So the curators at the Palais uh, Galliera, Miran Azul-Luz and Veronica Belois, I probably wasn't quite right with the pronunciation <laughs> for the first curator. How does that work? You know, do they kind of, you, you know, because we were going through a pandemic for the last two years, do you Skype? I don't Skype, you Zoom and work out where things have to go and what pieces are meant to be the focal point. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, uh, weekly pro- um, project meetings at times as the sort of exhibition demanded it. I guess in the first place where you always start is a checklist. And when exhibitions travel, um, they obvious- the, obviously the scenography changes. And so one of... Um, I guess the key things about adapting the exhibition for the NGV was creating those spaces through exhibition design that kind of allow us to tell the story of the show. Um, Obviously, the uh, Palais Galliera is a, you know, a Beaux-Arts building. We have a very contemporary gallery space. Um, So the exhibitions look and feel quite different, but in terms of preserving the narrative and the argument of the show, um, that you know, that kind of storytelling you do, um, that doesn't change. But 
a lot of the discussion, as I mentioned before, was around where works could no longer travel, what we did to replace those works and to kind of locate examples um, internationally. So many of our discussions were around kind of finalising that and also about... Um, I guess introducing elements of multimedia perhaps, um, programming. So, yeah, lots of things to cover. Danielle, with the Coco Chanel, I mean, most people have heard of Coco Chanel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many women use, they mightn't buy Coco Chanel couture outfit, but most people know about it. For you, what, what makes her stand apart from other designers from the 20th century? I mean, well, yeah, that's a great question, and I think you're right. Chanel is probably one of the most recognisable brand, fashion brands out there. Like, even if you don't know who Coco Chanel is, you can recognise the double CC logo. You would have walked past the perfumes or the makeups, which is, you know, has its own visual language: the black and the white. Um, so, I guess what we, um, for me, what Chanel's contribution to the history of fashion is is this idea of streamlined simplicity and clothing that responds to the reality of women's lives I think that's the most important you know takeaway from Chanel's career is that she was born in an era like in the late 19th century where women were trussed up in crinolines corsets stiff fabrics huge hats And she was not having a bar of any of that. And she introduced, you know, to women's wardrobes these ideas of comfort and simplicity and functionality um, that weren't just about, you know, putting on a, you know, grubby tracksuit, but, you know, a way of dressing that satisfied all those um, principles but was also still elegant. And it's this kind of idea of an understated luxury. And I think that is something that is timeless, you know, and that now we perceive to be kind of classic. We use those sorts of words. And that's the kind of legacy of Chanel is that sort of minimalism in fashion. I think if people don't really understand the the shift she made in fashion, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at shows like My Fair Lady, when they're all at the races wearing these incredibly complicated uh, outfits, and you look at what Chanel did, which was really at the same time, or just afterwards, you can see the huge shift. I mean, it would have been like seeing a um, a Ray Kuakuba uh, exhibition or runway show in the early 80s. People would have been horrified, I would have thought. I mean, it wouldn't have been an easy transition or, you know, for such a radical shift in fashion. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, the, I... At that time, I guess what you have is the kind of uh, synchronicity between, um, you know, the the emancipation of women. Like, you you know, we have, you know, building on from, you know, suffrage movements of, you know, that sort of late 19th, early 20th century period, but ideas of kind of the flapper or the garçon, this sort of um, youthful woman that rode, that drove, that maybe worked... um, coinciding with the need for a wardrobe that responded to that. So I think, you know, Chanel's arrival on the fashion scene was incredibly timely and corresponded to those broader social changes that were happening um, at the beginning of the 20th century. And I imagine the um, the onset of the First World War in 1914 really hastened that change because mm. it would have looked quite ridiculous during these difficult times for women to be, you know, 
parading down the boulevards of Paris wearing these impossibly uh, complicated outfits. <laughs> it's true, it's true. And interestingly, like, um, Chanel begins her career as a milliner, but in 19... Uh, sort of... 14, 15, um, the wealthy are fleeing Paris to the seaside resort towns of Deauville and Biarritz and that's where Chanel establishes her early kind of, I guess we call them, ready-to-wear boutiques and is dressing the upper class classes for this more leisured lifestyle which is, you know, far away from the horrors of war but, you know, it is about, you know, sunbathing and tanning, it, it's about, you know, playing tennis and golf and sport and, and having, you know, as I said before, a wardrobe that you know, uh, supported all of that. So um, it, it's interesting. It, it does create an environment that, that sort of, you know, during the war period for Chanel to kind of really cement her aesthetic. I think looking at the show, because I visited mm. um, the exhibition already uh, when it first opened, and I think people would have been impressed by the, A, the extraordinary fabrics she used in the right through the exhibition and the level of detail from the garments from the 1920s and 30s are quite uh, sumptuous and I think people probably didn't see don't often see that side of Chanel's work because it is really almost a separate story from her latter work. Mm. Yeah I think I mean I think what you have to remember as you walk around the show is that when Chanel um, established her couture house at Rue Cambon it was only couture and so we didn't have a language of ready to wear um, coming out of the atelier so as you remark you know the the fabrics are extraordinary the construction techniques are extraordinary and you know Chanel herself said you know um, luxury isn't inseparable from simplicity so what you have is a streamlining of the silhouette, um, but in the most incredible ways. And throughout her career, there was always um, attention to both the cut of a garment, but also what it was made from. Like in the um, mid-1920s, she starts to work with textile manufacturers to create exclusive knits um, for her collections. She also um, starts to produce her own fabric prints for these beautiful, delicate sort of chiffons and silk foil dresses. And these are, you know, these are things that are expressive of her love of nature. We see this in the exhibition. There's extraordinary works um, from the 1930s featuring these very, um, you know, bright floral prints, uh, you know, leaves and sprigs. Um, There's a great work from the Powerhouse Museum, which has this incredibly vivid feather print all over it. And so it's always this attention to the cut of fabric, but also to the fabric itself. The other thing that's interesting about the exhibition is the the middle part of the exhibition, which I kept Mm. walking around. Um, And look, she must have been one of the first to create um, or she was one of the first to create, you know, a, a Chanel Number no. Five, the perfumes, the lipsticks, the carry-on, um, you know, almost the uh, the little, you know, instead of a vanity case, that all these beautiful little uh, designed bottles that were specifically designed for travelling. Amazing. I mean, for people interested in industrial design, that was really a a big shift. No, absolutely. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the it's the the visual language of the perfumes and the cosmetics, which is unchanged today. You could walk into the um, beauty counter at David Jones or Myers and 
you would still see the same kind of language of packaging and it's that kind of very spare, minimalist, graphic, you know, the typeface, you know, Chanel, black on white, the square boxes with the, you know, white with the black outline. Um, But again, you know, the innovation is in the packaging and the portability. So say, for example, a face powder originally came in a cardboard box and so if you were to try and put that in your handbag and head out to dinner, that's... Yeah, give up. (laughs) It's all over your, you know, your um, handbag. But so she creates these little um, hard cases made out of Bakelite that, yes, you can pop into your um, purse and take with you and... It's it's that sort of the la- the minimalism the minimalism sorry of that language of packaging that yes yeah, starts to build some of those codes that we you know see in the brand today. And Danielle, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know she really would have been at the uh, forefront of marketing mm. in fashion. Absolutely, and I think the thing that you see in the exhibition is how. Um, just how strongly um, we identi- Chanel herself was identified with her brand. She was the one that, that embodied the style that we come to, you know, define as the sort of the Chanel style. She was the face of perfume. So the perfume um, number five is um, invented in 1921. In 1937, there's a beautiful suite of photos taken by Francois Collar for Harper's Bazaar. And those photos become the first advertisements for Chanel number five in magazines. And, you know, she's standing, leaning against, um, so what do you call it? Like the... The Mantelpiece, sorry, oh, yes. in her um, apartment at the Ritz in this incredible lace gown with jewellery on and, you know, this is the image that, you know, advertises to audiences internationally, Chanel Number no. 5. Um, and, it, you know, even the fact that her name, you know, she's one of the first designer perfumes is kind of revolutionary. Mm. Now, um, the exhibition was very extensive and beautifully arranged. Mm. I mean, my only... Um, you know, my disappointment, and I don't know if other people felt that, that the um, she never made it big in America or she, she struggled to make it big in America until she produced those very classic, um, you know, almost power suits with a bit of a soft silhouette. But, you know, they were kind of – and there's rows of them. And when I walked in, I could just see Maggie Thatcher lined up on either side. <laughs> and my partner said, yes, but the fabrics are beautiful, Stephen. Look at the fabrics. And I could see the beautiful fabrics and the work that went into it. But I thought – they're all the same. They just look boring. <laughs> but they're not. But they're not. Um, and, I, they, and that range apparently, you know, went gangbusters in America because they love that very classical look, the Jackie O look. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, when Chanel uh, relaunches her fashion house in 1954, she's 70 years old and, you know, she says something like, you know, I never had retirement in my heart. Um, you know, I'd rather – I prefer disaster to nothingness. So having already, you know, um, revolutionised fashion once in the first half of the century, she sets about doing it a second time. And I think that's incredible, you know, at 70 – you know, I hope to be gardening. Who knows? <laughs> but um, what was so revolutionary about that latter look? Was mm. it just the ease of wearing them, yeah. and women obviously responded to that very classical but very safe yeah. look? I mean, it's interesting because, in a way, what she's doing is drawing on the language of 
the relaxed suit that she first introduced in the 19 sort of 20s and you know the the suit without padding without a lot of interfacing that cardigan style jacket the um you know uniformity of the matching jacket and skirt and it is something when she has her first uh presents her first collection in um february 1954 is that she the french are whatever you know but the americans love it and it really just ties in with i guess a lot of that you know the the post post war American aesthetic, which is you know draws from sports where it um, it is also about kind of yeah relaxed elegance, the sort of um, a uniform for women who are you know out in the world who are working, um, and they don't and, want to don't want to overthink yeah fashion. and it, and it, it's a very easy I mean you know it's a very easy uniform for women to adopt and I think. Um, despite what you might think, is that when you look at the variation in that one design um, style in the room in the exhibition, which features over 35 different suits and includes Chanel's own suit, which is the first one, which is quite a modest um, brown tweed ensemble with a with two pockets, what you can see is just how... Um, incredible the reinvention of the iconography of the suit by the you know the, the use of the braid two pockets four pockets the decorative um, buttons which you know have a lot of symbolism they you know you can see here the double cc logos the shamrocks the lion's heads all of which kind of you know about building the brand the codes of the of the brand but the fabrics themselves I oh mean, no the fabrics are beautiful I can't disagree mm. I just I felt I was like I felt like you know, the, her first part of her career was so seductive mm. and so exciting and things that I hadn't seen before and I just felt, seen that. <laughs> and, and maybe because it is such a represented image mm. in fashion magazines mm. for decades to follow, you feel as if, well, you know, where are we? But then I think what, what I find so interesting about the Chanel suit is that Chanel's 70. But she's not designing a wardrobe for women of her own age. You know, the kind of, you know, the ladies at lunch set. Like this is a – the suit is adopted by, as you mentioned before, the kind of Hollywood starlets. You know, you've got Bridget Bardot, you've got Grace Kelly, you've got, yeah, Jackie Kennedy. You've You know, it's women of 20, of 40. It's it's an ageless um, garment typology. And even when we think about – you know, who wears it today? Like the stylist Rachel Zoe in New York, we're familiar with her and her wardrobe of like Chanel jackets. We can see Kate Moss in her Chanel jacket, jeans and gumboots at Glastonbury. It, it, even today there's... Um, they mix it up. Yeah, it's, it, it's not something that is unfashionable in any way whatsoever. And what a legacy. Yeah. And what do you think Karl Lagerfeld, uh, how did he, you know, he obviously made it, modern mm. and contemporary again when he was introduced to mm. as the key designer for Chanel. What do you think his legacy will be remembered for? Yeah. Well, I think what um, Lagerfeld did when he arrived at Chanel at 19, in 1983 is to really, I guess, sort of play with the codes of the house Um but through this, you know, great postmodern lens where, you know, we see the kind of hip-hop-influenced collections of, you know, 
the eighties, we see you know him, you know the kind of excessive use of the guilt chain, um, you know playing with the kind of sequins and those kind of scuba inspired collections, and I just think it's that use of irony. So you know if we think about Chanel herself, like there was there was no irony in in what she did and what she produced. It was a great sincerity and a real you know like the title of the exhibition. There was a fashion manifesto at the heart of what she did which was to kind of advocate for this streamlined simplicity elegance and ease in dress and she never diverted from that vision um but what Carl does is he he brings you know a sense of wit and a sense of humor to the design language um and makes it perhaps a little bit more sexy too like I think look what he he also delivered mm. uh, fashion in a very different way. I mean, there was one collection, as you would remember, where all the models walked through the supermarket. Yes, yes. <laughs> wearing <laughs> Chanel. And that was, you know, people just looked on while, you know, leading models were picking off items off the shelf. That was new. So it was a, it was a new way of talking about fashion when Chanel would have just had it in her, in her luxury headquarters in Paris. This is kind of bringing it to a new audience. Yeah, absolutely. And we actually you know it's great because you mentioned that collection because we have in the collection the grocery basket tote from the supermarket collection and what's fantastic about it is it's made out of um silver um chain link with uh black leather threaded through it so it forms the framework of a you know open you know grocery bag but what it does is refer back to the shoulder strap of the original 2.55 handbag which was you know again part of um chanel's contribution in that sort of uh 1950s post-war period so there's always this relationship to i guess you know iconic moments within the house's history with lagerfeld um and actually uh, upstairs on the second floor um of the NGV, we've actually got a showcase that features about, I think, 20 Lagerfeld era handbags. So you can go up and you can have a look at, you know, we've got things like the gigantic hula hoop um, handbag. We've got, you know, the, the classic Lego brick, the jerry can and the grocery basket, as I mentioned. So you can see that sort of um, relationship between past and, and present. Um, Daniel, why is it that people love fashion exhibitions? I mean, I'm uh, I'm mad on them. I love them. Wherever I go, I, I love looking at fashion. Why is it? Is it just memory and people go, I remember I wore that or I remember when we bought that? And what is it about fashion exhibitions that excites people? Because it is exciting. Yeah. It's art. It's 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 functional. It brings together so many things. What what do, what? Why do you think it's so? These um, exhibitions are so popular, and the NGV have done some blockbusters. Yeah, I mean it's a good it's a good question, Stephen. And I should actually say to you, like, why do you love fashion yeah. exhibitions? But well, um, I think it's all of that. It's memory. Um, I mean, I, I wasn't around in the '30s or in the yeah. early 20th century mm. when Chanel was presenting, but I think it's history mm. um, shown in a, in a different way of how people presented mm. themselves and what they valued. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's an appreciation for design and for craftsmanship. Um, I think, you know, each fashion exhibition has its own flavour. So sometimes we're looking at something which is incredibly conceptual that challenges our ideas of what fashion can be. Sometimes we're looking at something which is simply 
exquisite and beautiful, which I think a lot of the pieces in the Chanel exhibition are, like particularly when we think about those wonderful, romantic, ethereal sort of lace dresses of the 30s. I mean, when you look at the construction and the impression of those, you know, they're breathtaking. Um, But then you're also, you layer on top of that the kind of social or cultural context of the moment in which they're made and you can understand that, you know, how revolutionary they may or may not have been. And and I think that's the thing with Chanel is you have to kind of enter the exhibition with an understanding of what just came right before and then how much of a um, a shift this was aesthetically. And I think that, that first room in the exhibition, which has all those wonderful, fine sort of um, silk day suits and the jersey knits and the kind of really um, beautiful printed chiffon dresses, you can walk around that and think They're they wouldn't be out of today. place today. And that's a hundred that's a hundred years on. That's a mm. pretty big statement to make. So I think there's those things which build our appreciation and and enthusiasm for for fashion. Um, and plus, it's always connected to identity. So you know we're invested in fashion all the time in our daily lives like getting dressed in the morning is about kind of your presentation of self so there is yeah at at the very heart you know for all of us um you know an understanding of of what this you know discipline gives us you know i think you know for people who say oh you know fashion's just not my thing Mm. um i would say it's a shame because you learn so much from fashion Mm. um and if you go to the exhibition fashion exhibitions and the number at the ngv it's it's so diverse so Mm. it's not just um clothing it's well it's the fabrics Mm. it's industrial design there's so much that goes into each one, showing the clothes to their best effect. I mean, that in a sense requires skill, not mm. just plonking them on a, on a mannequin. Mm. It requires skill. Yeah. I mean, fashion's such a barometer for what's going, you know, on in the world at any one time. Like, you know, it can be political. It can, you know, it, it's... And, um, Danielle, the other thing I was going to ask you, given the pandemic and what's happened, this is beyond... Uh, the Chanel exhibition, but given what's happened in the last two years and people have been really restricted uh, to home and working more from home, where do you see fashion going? Is it Are we going to see those awful cut-off Lycra gym clothing for the next few years while people adapt to the real world? But where's it going? Is it? Is it... I mean, I hate to say it, but is fashion dead or is it... No, definitely de- not, no. And I think you just... I mean, you know... No one has a crystal ball. But if you look at what's going on on the runways, there's always, you know, um, great, you know, new emerging designers to watch. Fashion is always changing. It's always adapting. It's always responding. And uh, and I think that will continue. I don't think anyone gives up just because we're, you know, forced into a And in terms <laughs> of the, the Lycra gear, are we going to see that for the next few years? <laughs> Tell me we're not. I guess the thing with fashion today is that, so many things exist at the any at, at any one time. So I'm sure that will there will be some people who still commit enthusiastically to that look, and others will move on and find something else to wear. Um, look, thanks so much for being a guest today, Danielle. It's been fun. It is always fun when I uh, interview you, and um, and those who haven't seen the exhibition, I. I 
really suggest you go and see it before it closes at the end of April. And uh, thanks so much for being a guest. You've been listening to Danielle Whitfield, Curator of Fashion and Textiles at the National Gallery of Victoria. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks, Stephen.